on Srebrenica Stories podcast, we are joined by Rashad Trevoncha, survivor of the Siege of Sarajevo. The siege lasted for four years and cost almost 11,000 people their lives. During this time, Rashad became a soldier aged just 19. In recent years, Rashad has worked as country coordinator for Remembrance Srebrenica in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Alongside this, he has played a key role in shaping changes around international policy regarding victims of conflict, understanding the impact of genocide, and in the prevention and reduction of hate crime. Rashad, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining me today. Uh, thank you, thank you for such a such a such a beautiful um, introduction. <laughs> I, I was I was never I wasn't even aware that I was already doing all that. <laughs> How do you describe what happened in Sarajevo? Well, <laughs> um, it's very difficult, actually, in, to just explain it in a couple of couple of sentences. But um, I'll try. I'll try to be as, as short, as concise, and, and precise as as, as possible. Uh, Sarajevo, is a, Sarajevo is, a, is a beautiful city. Sarajevo is the the crossroad of civilization. Sarajevo is the place where east, east meets west. Sarajevo is a place that is quite often referred to as the European Jerusalem because in the main street of Sarajevo, just within 200 meters, you'll find the uh, a Catholic church, a cathedral, the cathedral mosque, and a Jewish synagogue just laying there in a beautiful peace and harmony for, for centuries. So basically for us in Sarajevo, the, the war would, was, never an, was never an option, basically. You could never, um, you could never dream of that the, the war can, can happen. Uh, if you take into consideration what I've just said, and bear in mind that the, all people in, in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina are white, they speak the same language, they have up to a 90% very same cultural habits, then there you go. You, you can't expect, you can't, you can't believe that the work can, the work can happen. But then uh, you never, 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 never underestimate the, the politicians and, and their power of what they are able to do. And this is actually what happened. The, the people came to the power that decided that they will show to us that there is that there is us and there is them, and that's basically the, the perfect formula for starting a conflict. For as long as, as long as you divide people and explain to your people that you are better than them others, then you can expect everything. And like I said, this is exactly what happened in Sarajevo. So the people who who lived side by side for, for centuries, all of a sudden, overnight almost, became enemies, only because they were, they were explained and told, told by the politicians that this is, this is their time now. And if you add a bit of, of history, then a little bit of religion, a little bit of mythology, uh, then there you go. You have um, you have just made a, a, a deadly a deadly poison that will that will blow people's minds off. Uh, 
And this, this is this is exactly what happened in Sarajevo, and the, the toll in Sarajevo was 11,000 lives lost. For what? I I would like to hear this answer from someone sometimes because until today I I couldn't find the answer for the for the stupidity that we've been that we've been through. And do you do you remember first realizing that the city would be under siege? Um, no, we were quite like I said we were we were quite naive. Um, uh, the Yugoslav National Army, that was the, the 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 force that was there to kind of protect the country from the from the outside and inside enemy, decided to take side of one people only in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And a couple of months prior to the prior to the prior to the escalation of war in Bosnia and Herzegovina, the Yugoslav National Army was performing some. Works around the around the city of Sarajevo, and all of the Sarajevans naively thought that the army is doing. You know that there is public works that nobody wants to do, and then when you have no one, you invite army, and then army makes new roads, makes the sanitary connection, water supplies, and this is exactly what we thought it was happening. And boy, we were so wrong because whatever was prepared then. And was whatever whatever was, was made then was actually the preparations for the for the longest siege of Sarajevo. They were making fortifications. They were making uh, supply routes, communication routes, every, everything that for the future for four years is going to be used by the by the by the Serbs Serbian uh, forces that will keep the city besieged. So during this time. What became your normality? Oh wow! Um, the, the the normality at the time when the when the war started, I just turned nineteen. So it's like I can freely say to myself, and then I'm sure that many of people who are hopefully going to listen to this are going to agree with me. Was this empty-headed? Teenager who knew nothing about life, nothing about war, nothing about politics, just like the majority of the teenagers today do. <clears throat> um, I was hanging around the block with my mates, which was, who were different confessions, different nationalities. We were all Bosnians, but then, you know, there was Orthodox, there were Catholics, there was Muslims. And the only difference between all of us was actually in our names, nothing else. So I was, I was into, I was into punk music. I was, I was a rebellious teenager, I would have to say. And that was, if you pick me up from Bosnia and place me anywhere else in the world, I would most probably perfectly blend in. But then, just a couple of weeks later, this uh, innocent innocent teenager, empty-headed teenager became a soldier because his city was attacked. And this became my normality, surviving day after day in the longest siege of one city in the, in the history of, of modern warfare. Uh, just as a comparison, people usually learn from the World War II history books that the 
the siege of Stalingrad, and everybody, everybody pretty much heard about it. But the the siege of Sarajevo lasted two times longer than that one. So we were immediately after the siege started. We were deprived of food, water, electricity, um, phones. Uh, to put it in a in a simple way, uh, all the things that you have in your life today that you take for granted, like first of all, com- com- coming home and heading home, your home not being destroyed by the by a, a, a shrapnel or grenades from mortar grenades coming from the hills, then coming home, switching on your lights, running the water, so. All those things that you take for granted were gone, disappeared. And then for the next four years, what I would say, it was a pretense of life. We, it was, you could hardly call it a life. It was a pretense of life. And we were trying to cope with it. We being, being without food, the only food that we were receiving was the humanitarian aid that was delivered to us by the United Nations. If uh, being a soldier, when not being a soldier, uh, taking water home, bring taking woods home, so your mom and dad could could cook on something, could could that you could heat yourself on. So basically, so this is 1992, and if there's older people who are going to listen to this, these are the times when these famous uh, Pentium computers were introduced in the world, this high-tech artificial intelligence. So at the time when people in, in the rest of the world were introduced with this high-tech in technologies, we in Bosnia and in Sarajevo, we were going back to the, to the um, learning how to cook on woods, how to uh, make your own candle, how to collect water from the rainfalls, how to uh, basically basically how to invent life from from scratch. Uh, we were sent back like ages, centuries in history, just within a couple of couple of weeks time. So just as a reminder, in 1984, so just eight years before the before the war in Bosnia, Sarajevo hosted Winter Olympic Games. So we were quite advanced city. This country wasn't some godforsaken place in the mountains or in the desert, uh, but it was the it was the civilized uh, country in the heart of, in the heart of Europe. And this is what we were facing as of then. So uh, to survive the war is the being a soldier is one thing, and. I have seen and witnessed things that none of the uh, none of the Hollywood blockbusters have shown so far. I've seen people next to me being decapitated by the shrapnels into grenades. I've seen people's brains being still on the on the pavement by the by the bullet coming from a sniper from the hill. So name it. I have I really 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 seen it seen it all. But then that is that is one aspect of being in Israel during the siege. The second one was actually the times those those times when you were not a soldier, when you were free from your 
obligations as a soldier, which was um, in a week's time, you would have one or two days that you could dedicate yourself to your family and your kind of kind of normal normal life, which was everything but normal. But like I said, we were pretending. We were pretending. So in these these couple of days, you'd go and collect water. You'd go and collect wood. You would go and find some extra food if possible. Apart from this food that was given to us by the by the United Nations humanitarian aid, so um, it was difficult. It was it was hard to for me. I find myself today in, in sometimes that I really can't understand how did we manage to survive all of that and. In some situations, I find myself to actually question myself, are you sure that this really did happen to you? Because it's, it's, beyond, it's beyond imagination even. Uh, I'll just give you a, a stupid, stupid, simple um, uh, kind of... In the, in the times when there was no, when there was no food, um, and there's no electricity, and there's not there's nothing. Uh, hospitals were in huge demand for fresh blood because the number of the people being injured and wounded in Israel was it was already tens and hundreds of thousands. Um, and the, the hospitals was constantly constantly appealing to the people to come and donate blood. So when you go and donate blood, uh, they'll take 300 mils of blood, like a blood donation. And in return, not as a matter of payment, but as a matter of regaining your strength, you would get the, you would get a can of beef. So I came home. My mom told me we pretty much have nothing to eat. I went to the hospital. I donated. I gave blood, and I got the can of beef. I brought it home, and then tomorrow I went again, obviously showing my other arm, not the one that I already gave blood from. And I scored two cans of beef in in two days. So that was that was life. The the things that the things that you do are beyond beyond imagination. Seriously. And this podcast could be going on for most probably days, and I would still have something to say about about war in Sarajevo. So, when the siege ended, how did you get back to, I guess, what most people would call a regular life? Um. So it was it was kind of like an almost like an immediate. how to explain it. So it's almost like somebody took a scissors and disconnect you from that previous life that you were having for four, four years. Um, you didn't have time. I still, most probably, I still didn't have time to, to, recon, to, to, to reconstruct everything that I've went through during these three and a half, four years. It's a simple, very simple reason. So this, the part from 92 to 95 was surviving the war. 
And then when the war ended, you had to survive the peace because the peace came, the construction of the country came, with the reconstruction, reconstruction of the country came the electricity, water supplies, telephones, came bills, all these, everything that you needed to pay now to continue with your life. So you needed to find a job. So this is exactly what happened. So I ended, I was dismissed from the army when the Dayton Peace Agreement was, was signed, which was in November 1995. Already in February 1996, I started working and this is what I'm doing until, until today. So after surviving the war, we just went to a next level, which was surviving the peace. And it was very, very, it was very, how to, how to call it, it was a, it was a normal chain of events. You didn't, you didn't have time to now sit at home and think about the war that you've just been through and all this stuff that was, that was killing you for three and a half years. You just move on, moved on. And this is pretty much what everybody did. There's one thing, there's one thing that everybody needs to, everybody needs to understand. There's no, there's no big announcements to the war. This is not something that you are waiting to happen and then somebody says, now the countdown, it's now three days to the war, two days to war, 24 hours before. No, the war just begins. And you find yourself in the situation that everything that was normal until yesterday, today doesn't exist any longer. And then when the war ends, and this is something that the, the human humans failed to learn and which is something that I can't understand really is that every single war in history, every single one, ended in some sort of peace negotiations. Even even if it was between two tribes centuries ago, then the the chiefs of two tribes would sit down and arrange how to deal with the future. So this is exactly what happened in Bosnia again. But we keep on failing and having peace negotiations after the war. Instead of having peace negotiations 50 years if necessary, if needed, instead of fighting one day for something that, you know, it's very difficult to determine whether it's worth killing or dying for. If you take... If you think of yourself now, what is it that you're ready to die for? There's very few things in the, in, in, that you're ready to die for. So uh, instead of learning, instead of learning, we keep on failing. We keep on failing at the very same exam, which is, and this is the, the reason why I'm saying this is the following. So the war ended, peace negotiations, peace is signed. All, all of a sudden, it's peace now. We're not fighting anymore. People usually return their property. Properties, properties are rebuilt. Electricity, water supplies, name it. Everything, to a certain extent, goes back to normal. Except for those who died. They never come back. And how do you explain to them? What is it? Why is it that they died in this stupid war? 
I don't quite know what to say. <laughs> Alex, you're speechless. Um, well, when you look at the world today and what goes on in other countries and what you've been through, what, how does that make you feel? What do you feel like could change things for other people that are going through conflict? So it's, it's, actually, it's, actually, it's actually very simple. Um, the politicians are there to remain in power, and this is all they care for. They don't care about you, me, or anybody else. They maybe most probably they care about their families, how to make them feel better and be quite wealthy and good. They don't. They don't really care about you. Um, so, um, what everybody can do is actually, it's very simple. It's very very simple. Um, if whether you are religious, whether you're not religious, whether whatever you are, it doesn't really matter. But there is no religion, there is no religion in this world that halts you, stops you of being a good person. Or actually, even better, it's a better, even better formula, don't do to the others things that you don't want to be done to yourself. So if you start living and having this in mind and reject hatred and accept love as far more powerful emotion than hate, then you can survive. You can survive by ignoring what you're being served by your politicians and local medias. Trust yourself, trust your guts and your instincts that the person that's living next to you is in fact the person that is nearest to you. So if, you, if you're going to go for... Um, and the most important thing is actually to stop living next to each other, which is something that we did in Bosnia, but actually start living with each other. By living with each other, I mean knock on your neighbor's door. He is the closest person to you. It's not your mom or dad that might be living in, I don't know, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Kilmarnock, whatever. This person is the person that you will come to if you need a cup of sugar, cup of flour, whatever. And if you don't know anything about them, then this is the gap that the politicians are going to use to make you and him. This is exactly the gap that they're going to hit and tell, serving you with things that will help them to divide communities. So living next to each other is high and by as you're passing by, not knowing really anything about each other. With each other is actually go and have coffee with him. Maybe somebody is telling him something about you that is total nonsense and total lie. And the same goes the other way around. So if you do that in your street, and if 10 other people do it in their streets, then you're already making a progress, making a difference, closing this gap where the politicians will not be able to penetrate and saying that you are different than the others. If you're religious, if God wanted to create all people the same, then we would all be the same, I guess. But we are definitely not so 
I guess there is a there is a glitch somewhere in the I don't know these. And then there is another thing. Educate yourself. Learn. For instance, many people, many people of Orthodox Catholic faith, they don't know that Jesus is actually recognizing Quran as one of the prophets. So Muslims around the world, they do believe in Jesus. Which is something that a lot of people don't know. So these are little things that can change the perception of the ordinary people, that they can actually then open up to their neighbors, to their to the people that they work with, to get to know them better. If you hate them, it doesn't say anything about them. It speaks only about you. It's your weakness to accept and understand something that is different to you. I don't know a person in this world that wants to be weak. So by being, so by rejecting hatred and accepting love, then this whole planet has a chance to survive. That's my humble opinion. What role do you think religion does play in conflict? Religion, religion in the conflict is usually not used, it's being misused to turn people against each other. And if, you're, if there is no religion in this world that calls upon violence, no, not a single one. So how can you recognize yourself as being a member of something that goes to destroy something else? I hope that we've passed these crusades ages ago. How do you feel about your history now? Our history now in Bosnia and Herzegovina, it's our. The war in Bosnia and Herzegovina was interrupted. The peace negotiation, the peace agreement was signed that didn't go in favor of any side in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Therefore, today in Bosnia, we have three histories. Three histories, and the most, most disgusting one is actually that one, the phase that we are going through now, is a denial of things that happened from 92 to 95, including the denial of, denial of genocide. And this is something that is extremely dangerous because now, 25 years after the genocide, you have almost what two, three generations of pupils that came out from the from the school who believed that the genocide never happened, that this was some sort of war crime, but nothing in particular, that it was almost justified, and that the people who committed these crimes are now being recognized as war heroes. This is not acceptable, this is something that needs to be changed on our on our not only on a, on a scale of Bosnia and Herzegovina, but the scale of of world. Uh, genocide was recognized by the International Court of Justice, and the International Crime Tribunal of the former Yugoslavia, and as such needs to be recognized 
and taught in, in schools. Unfortunately, we in Bosnia are far, very far away from reaching that, this agreement, but luckily with the, and hopefully with the help of the world, that certainly includes Scotland. This is something that will sooner or later be changed in, in Bosnia too. I'm just wondering how much you knew was going on elsewhere in Bosnia during the time you were living under siege. It was it, it was it was very difficult because we were kind of in a total in a total dark with no electricity with no uh, with no radios. With no, we knew little about the things that were happening in Bosnia, but certainly we didn't know in details. If you were a soldier, you would know most probably a bit more from from the sources that were available to the, to the army. Uh, with this very limited uh, amount of electricity, we would from time to time see the TV and knew what was what was going on. But and generally speaking, it was very it was very difficult because you were in a total, total, total dark. Um, and something that keeps coming up when I've been speaking to people who have been on delegation is how shocked they are at the at the lack of um, international responsibility and intervention. I'm just wondering how, when you're talking about the food rations that you had, and what was that support like for you? What did it feel like for you? So to, to put it to put it very to be very, very open and honest with you, without this support, the, the number of people in Bosnia would start, start to death would be far bigger than the people who were actually killed in the, in the battlefield. So without a doubt, uh, these, these people have done an enormous, enormous um, Thing to to help Bosnians survive during the during the siege, and not only during the siege in Sarajevo, but throughout throughout Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, international community has failed. That goes without saying. In this, whatever happened in 1995, could have happened in 1992 if there was if there was a will by the international community. Uh, but there wasn't, and we all know the result. So from that, if you're looking at the international community from that aspect, then, well, yeah, absolutely, it's a huge, huge failure in these three, three and a half years, that's four years. But without this humanitarian aspect, uh, the situation in Bosnia would have been much, much worse. So it's kind of a it's kind of a balanced opinion. Yes, they help to a certain extent, but then in the extent of where they can they could actually prevent things from happening, it, it didn't happen. Why? I guess the the history will will teach us. I hope so. 
And when when you're telling your story, what do you hope people learn or or hear in it? Well, I will, I will, I will, I'm, I'm always trying to to inspire them into thinking about what is it that they can actually do to make things better, and all everything I say is not directed to point a blame to one one side because that side whichever that side is they have their reasons too which are not they're not justified they're not normal but this this is the reason that they would be believed in so if you if you find yourself that you are able to talk to someone at least try try to listen to see what is it that they have to say before falling into a fire and into a, some argument. Just talk to each other. I mean, try to understand each other because you might be talking about the, the very same thing from two totally different perspectives. So if, 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 there, is, if there is a possibility that you can that you can prevent something from, from happening, then I guess the, the conversation about such a thing is the, the best possible way to, to avoid the conflict. So this is, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to teach them that, not necessarily because they believe that something believe is right, is actually right. Some uh, don't, don't trust these, these prejudices that are being served to you in a beautiful, beautifully wrapped in a, in a shiny little cellophane that somebody says, you know, these people are after you and unless you do something, they're going to go. Don't listen. And you obviously see that this, this person is coming to you with the, with, the, with the box of flowers. Why should you believe that he's coming to, that he's after you and he wants to kill you? See, talk. Don't listen to them. Trust your instinct, trust your eyes, trust your guts. Talk to talk to people and try to understand. And don't let this the most most important thing. Don't reject the prejudice, reject the hatred, open up and listen to the others. This is if there is my mess if there is a message, that would that would be that would be the one. Rashad, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome, and thank you very much for inviting me to be a, a guest at your podcast. And hi to everyone in Scotland that I <laughs> that, that I know, and I know that this this is one one of the country that is very very dear to my heart. With the wonderful people living there. Thanks. Thank you.